Is normalcy returning to Texas? It doesn't seem like it. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here to guide you and me through the news of the week, as always, is Ace Houston Chronicle political reporter Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. You can check out uh, Jeremy's work anytime at HoustonChronicle.com. It does seem a little bit subdued this week, doesn't it? Even though there were some big stories, just not as many of them, um, I think it's fair to say, and you've made this observation, that without Trump in the White House, things do seem a little more even keel, right? It doesn't seem like there's a fire to put out every single day. Yeah. You know, maybe just a little more stable. Yeah, exactly. You kind of get the sense that, you know, Joe Biden's attempt to make a nine to five presidency mm-hmm. is kind of like he's succeeding on that front. You know, it's like, on that front. Right. Yeah. None Debate of us are hanging things. around in the middle of the night, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what's being tweeted and, yeah. you know, what did he say about who and whatever. Right. All that's gone. You it, know? There's none of none of the questions about who was personally attacked at 537 in the morning <laughs> exactly. anymore. You don't you don't have to deal with that. Right. But, but there are big stories to talk about this week. Let's start with the state of the state of Texas. Uh, the governor gave a speech um, in Lockhart. He was at a, at a facility there at a business. He wanted to feature a local business trying to you know make their way uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And I have to tell you, Jeremy, it was a little surreal to watch him in a room all by himself deliver a speech that is usually presented in front of a joint session of the Texas House and Senate. It's like our little version in Texas of what they do in Washington when the State of the Union happens and the House and Senate get together. You've got, uh, in our version, the uh, state Supreme Court justices and all of those people would typically be packed together. They would put folding chairs on the floor of the Texas House, you know, in between the desks so they get more people in there. Um, But of course, you can't do that during a pandemic. So there was Abbott by himself, basically just him and the TV cameraman. Good evening. To members of the Texas legislature who join us tonight virtually, and to my fellow Texans, as we gather tonight, I can tell you the state of our state is brimming with promise. Brimming with promise doesn't sound like we're doing, you know, just perfectly well right now, that, that there may be good things on the way, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that fair? Uh, he talked about the way Texans have handled the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. 2020 was a year unlike any in our lifetime, not just for Texas and America, but for the entire world. I've seen firsthand the personal hardships and the pain that we have all endured. Our hearts are with those who have suffered from COVID and we mourn for every single Texan who lost their lives to the virus. We pray to God that their families will heal from the hurt of losing a loved one. And we also pray for all of the Texans who are still recovering from COVID. He still has a problem, Jeremy, with trying to empathize with people. His attempts at empathy sort of seem to undermine his authenticity, at least in my estimation, uh, listening to that. He said it is not all bad news. Now, to say the pandemic is a challenge is an understatement. But to say that it has been a reversal of who we are as Texans is a misstatement. Texas remains the economic engine of America, the land of unmatched opportunity. And our comeback is already materializing. Given all that, he said, the light at the end of this terrible tunnel is starting to emerge. Texans are returning to work. Students are returning to school. Families are reestablishing routines. With each passing day of more vaccinations and increased immunity, normalcy is returning to Texas. Now, Jeremy, I'm going to get to the uh, priorities he laid out in that speech for the legislature in just a bit. But when we say uh, that normalcy is returning to Texas, when he says that, 
Um, is that anywhere close to true? I mean, you're looking at the COVID-19 numbers all the time and taking a look at the hospitalizations, the deaths, the new infections. What does it look like right now compared to, say, six months ago or a year ago? Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, granted, we are down to about 10,500 hospitalizations right now for COVID-19. Uh, that's almost exactly where we were in July. Mm-hmm. So it's just like in some respect, we are almost exactly back to mid-July when we had that first huge outbreak. Uh, granted, the numbers came down, uh, spiked back up again around, you know, after Christmas, but now they've kind of gone down a little bit. So in terms of normalcy, it's like, you know, clearly we're still in this ping pong of trying to get these hospitalizations down. 10,000 is a lot. It's just a lot of hospitalizations for this. Mm-hmm. And we're approaching 38,000 Texans who will have died from this virus, you know. So 38,000 people, you know, are gone and another 10,000 are in hospitals right now. So, and he's talking about normalcy. Mm-hmm. That probably doesn't feel too normal for those 40,000 plus families. Well, it doesn't. And of course, you have a lot of people who are still not working in offices. They're working remotely. You have people who have not returned to work. We still do have uh, problems with unemployment. We have a lot of people who are waiting for some sort of stimulus from the federal government. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, But none of that feels normal. Uh, The Texas Democratic Party chairman, Gilberto Hinojosa, says it doesn't even matter what Abbott is saying in his speech. We have suffered under his watch because of his actions. We are all hurting. Texans are demanding an end to this pandemic and a fair shot to get ahead. As Barbara Jordan said, what the people want is very simple. They want an America as good as its promise. Hinojosa was speaking in a video that the Texas Democratic Party put together as the minority party's response to Abbott's state of the state. Uh, And they featured a whole bunch of different sort of Democratic stars, if you will. There were people who were state representatives and former um, White House contenders, including Julian Castro, who was featured in that video. He uh, sort of just threw cold water all over this idea that things are getting back to normal. As Texans and as Americans... We believe that everyone should have a fair shot at opportunity. Unfortunately, opportunity is out of reach for too many Texans today. And the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed just how many families are struggling to make ends meet. 35,000 Texas families have lost loved ones to this virus. The unemployment rate has more than doubled in the last year alone. And our state's leadership under Governor Abbott has failed to adequately respond, leaving Texas with one of the worst outbreaks and one of the worst responses in the entire nation. One of the things that Abbott talked about in that speech, Jeremy, is vaccinations and the fact that they're working to get as many of those out to people as possible. Now, we've seen and you know we've heard from people firsthand and seen in reports uh, that in the estimation of a lot of folks, it's been a disaster. Uh, that, that people you know have signed up for a, a vaccination appointment and then when they get to wherever it is that they're going to get it uh, they wait for you know for a half hour for an hour for hours on end maybe they don't even get it that day and have to go back uh, we have seen the governor and uh, the uh, head of the Department of State Health Services Dr. John Hellerstedt answer questions about that they were at Methodist Hospital a couple of weeks ago uh, and were asked about the idea that hey you know you have a lot of people who are in vulnerable populations people who are 65 plus who I mean, quite frankly, have a problem opening and responding to email. And so some of those people, you know, going and filling out an online form and then getting a QR code or whatever and going down to a place that they would get the vaccine, all of that's very complicated. Yes. Now, the governor would say, right, that we have surpassed 2 million vaccinations so far in Texas. But as far as, you know, what that means for the per capita uh, vaccinations, you know, in Texas versus other states, uh, you know, we would be, you know, somewhere in the probably not at the bottom, but somewhere in the sort of the maybe middle bottom of the pack. Is that sort of fair for how the numbers look. And it's been Republicans, I would say, who have wanted to compare state to state responses, right? It's been Democrats who have argued this should be a centralized thing that the federal government ought to be, you know, handling and, and, you know, dictating more things down to the states. When President Trump was there, his administration's philosophy was to do the opposite, to have the states basically take the lead on most of this stuff. And we're really still in that phase, right? I mean, the Biden administration is just starting, they're starting to get going and figuring out exactly how they're going to respond to everything. And, and if they do have any plans in place, which they do have some, they would only be getting started with those. Uh, so I do think it's fair to say that the response to COVID-19, even now that we have a vaccine that is being distributed, and that's a good thing, and we've heard you know success stories as well, to be fair here, 
but it's still kind of muddled, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's like just the the process of getting these vaccines out to the public uh, is clearly, you know, like you pointed out, it's like as we compare ourselves to other states, it doesn't look so great on this front. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we you know, we for the longest time, you know, think about the early part of the pandemic where we're like, ah, look at that. New York has all these deaths and we don't, you know, and then it was like, okay, now we're having more deaths in New York. So let's focus on something else. You know, in this case, you know, the the vaccine distribution, you know, I'm not sure if any state is doing it great, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but certainly you, you just see the concern of people, whether you're Republican, independent, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's a lot of concern out there about, like, where do I get this vaccine? People keep telling me it's out there, mm-hmm. and I can't get through to anybody. Yeah, it is really frustrating for people. Now, the governor's state of the state has sort of traditionally been uh, the uh, vehicle for him to lay out priorities for the legislature and what he would like them to do. Uh, he listed five emergency items, which I, I should explain that. We've talked about this a little bit before. When the governor designates something an emergency item, it's not really a quote-unquote emergency. That term can be a little confusing to people. Now, it can be an emergency, but that doesn't really mean that it is one just because he says it's one. Um, under Texas law, under the Constitution, you have a legislature that – and this is pretty libertarian of our state, right? We have a, a legislature that only meets for 140 days every two years, and, and that's the regular session. Now, they can be called into special session by the governor. Otherwise, you're pretty much safe from state government making changes, uh, to the laws that we all live under. That, that, I think that's a pretty libertarian idea, yeah. right? That's in the foundational document uh, of Texas. Um, and to take it a step further, the folks who wrote the Constitution also put it in there that for the first 60 days of the legislative session, you make it, it's a very narrow window. For that first 60 days, they can't pass any bills to, to send to the governor unless he declares something an emergency topic. Then they can start moving on that uh, topic, um, and he can you know, designate as many topics as he wants to be emergency items. Here are the items. Now, you tell me, Jeremy, if these sound like red meat for the conservative base. Ready? Just give me yes or no on each of these. <laughs> yeah. This will be a little fun thing. All right? <clears throat> the first is expansion of broadband internet access. Yeah, no, that's not red meat at all, right? Okay. Um, that's probably just a recognition that, uh, and this is one of those things the pandemic has exacerbated. We've talked about it here on the show. We have uh, school districts all over the state that were trying to do remote learning in parts of the state where they don't have any internet access, exactly. right? So this is something that was needed to be done already. And it's been magnified by the pandemic. You know, the fact that across 254 counties, 30 million people in two time zones, there's places where they just don't have any Internet. And the governor, this is not a concern. In fact, this is almost anti-conservative, if you will. For the governor of, of the state of Texas to say, Internet's not a luxury. Internet is something that everybody is basically entitled to. I'm paraphrasing, but that's <laughs> yeah. what he, that's right. But that's what he said. So they're going to work on that during the legislative session. I will not guarantee you, but I'll bet you they get something passed on that. Um, here's the second item. Quote, unquote, election integrity. Is that oh. a red meat one or yes or no? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. And this it, it maybe during um, during this time in history, it might be the most red meat thing they could do. Because you have these folks who are uh, still convinced that President Trump lost the election, that there was rampant voter fraud, even though there's no evidence of that. And more than 60 cases that were either filed by Trump or his allies were just thrown out for lack of standing or evidence. Um, No evidence of that whatsoever. But the Republican base, a lot of them, and we saw a poll just this week that said that, you know, there was uh, most Republicans think there was rampant voter fraud. There are those office holders uh, like Governor Abbott and many Republicans in the legislature who do believe that for their base, they need to do something on this, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. And you can look, there have been cases of voter fraud, sure. you know, in Texas, they just haven't been the mass voter fraud. And we've seen like, you know, you know, the attorney general's office, you know, the a couple of years ago, the legislature, you know, gave him more people to kind of investigate. Uh, election fraud as as it is but even now he's saying oh i need even you know those those guys are overwhelmed you know it's like mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of cases we need to look at so certainly from the republican side they're they're still kind of hit, hitting at this idea that there's you know voter fraud that needs to be investigated out there and that just feeds into what the base wants right the reason right. the other guy's winning is because they're cheating you know it's like that's what you know 
they want to kind of paint this as. Yeah, we, we heard uh, President Trump saying that, former President Trump. We heard Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick saying that over and over again. Leading up to the election, Patrick went so far as saying that if the Democrats win, if Biden wins, it will be because they stole it. Yeah. Right. Which, no, again, no evidence of that. Uh, but we have seen over the last, really over the last uh, few decades, but really in the last decade in Texas, a lot of legislation passed on this front. Uh, we'll see what they come up with exactly on this topic. There have been a few bills filed. Uh, it was pointed out that in the uh, Texas House committee assignments uh, that were issued yesterday by the new speaker, Dade Phelan, uh, pointed out that the guy who's been uh, tapped to lead the elections committee in the Texas House is one of the attorneys who flew to a swing state. He went to Philadelphia in Pennsylvania to try to overturn the election results uh, in favor of President Trump. Um, so watch for Democrats to be, and they're already pretty upset about that, um, and we will see what kind of legislation that they can agree on in the House and Senate and the governor. Uh, the governor's sort of uh, vague about that, about exactly what he wants them to do on election integrity, but he's going to get something on his desk when it comes to that. How about this one? Um, his version of bail reform, which we have talked about before. Oh, boy. Th you know, this has the potential to not be red meat, but, boy, does it have the potential to be red meat. <laughs> you right. know, it's like the, 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 the issue here is, you know, you have so many people who are in jail simply because mm -hmm. they can't afford the bail. Uh, but from a Republican standpoint, you know, what the last thing they want to see is, you know, bail being cut down so much that there's mm -hmm. all these people who should be behind bars are now out committing other yeah. crimes. And so well, mm -hmm. it's a definitely a law and order type of issue. So if you kind of bring, think of it as law and order, yeah, red meat in that front. Mm -hmm. How about this? Defending police from the defunding of police. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome yes, to red that meat. Was a, <laughs> that was the red meat that actually um, helped Republicans in the general election. Yeah. Right. I mean, the way they were able to uh, basically steal that issue, uh, I'll, I'll put it that way, steal that issue away from the left and from Democrats, who after the, um, the terrible uh, death of George Floyd uh, last year, there was so much energy around, you know, more uh, criminal justice reform, uh, reigning in the police, dealing with the abuses of police. And between that and by the, by the time November rolled around, Republicans had successfully turned the narrative into uh, Democrats want to uh, defund the police, to cancel the police, to get rid of law enforcement in your community. And we're the party who's going to defend the police and save the police. <laughs> and at the time, remember, we talked about um, the Democratic leadership in Texas, um, the Texas House Democratic Caucus, for example. They put out a statement immediately when Governor Abbott said that he was putting out a um, – uh, a back the blue pledge. Yep. The Democrats said, well, none of us are in favor of defunding the police, but that didn't seem to matter. Uh, you know, Republicans continued to hammer on that. I thought at one point, maybe Democrats should have appeared alongside Greg Abbott and signed his back the blue pledge just to take it off of the table that they do support the police, that the idea that they don't is ridiculous. So you can expect to see some kind of legislation on that. I would say on the bail reform thing, by the way, as you have noted, that's a much heavier lift because it gets to be pretty complicated at the legislature. They've attempted to do this a few times yeah. uh, as Abbott has been governor and haven't gotten any, anywhere on uh, bail reform. One more uh, emergency item. Again, an exercise of the governor's power. He's giving them permission at the legislature to go ahead and start working on this topic. Civil liability protections for businesses that could face lawsuits stemming from exposure to COVID-19. Is that red meat? Yeah, I think in this case it is. You know, I think, you know, this has clearly been a talking point from D.C. all the way down to the state level that mm -hmm. it's like, you know, they want to protect companies from liability. Uh, yeah. Particularly think about all those like nursing home facilities and assisted living facilities where there were outbreaks. You mm -hmm. know, those the owners of those places are business owners who donate lots of money. And there's no mm -hmm. doubt that they don't want to be sued by every single resident in their facilities and every worker. Right. And I would say a layer down on that uh, and maybe where the rubber really meets the road is the insurance carriers uh, and the tort reformers. Uh, the, the insurance carriers don't want to be paying out, uh, you know, large sums of money uh, for COVID-19 exposure, especially if it can't be proven. I was talking with some folks um, in the trial lawyer community this week who said that, you know, we'll see what happens on this. But they felt like it was a stupid issue because they, th there are no cases. 
there are no cases right now. I mean, you haven't seen some flood of cases. Uh, you know, you don't see people run into the courthouse suing over this. Now, they have some time to sue, right? And there may be some legislation that uh, puts a statute of limitations in place for how long it would be, you know, when you claim that you got COVID-19 somewhere and they could file a suit maybe within two years. But let's say they pass a bill that says that you have two years to file a suit. Well, if they're going to be suits, that would cause people to run to the yeah, courthouse. Exactly. You know, right? Go ahead and do it, right? So <laughs> I, I don't know for sure that they're going to get something that is as, um, as you know, stringent as they want on this, the tort reformer side of this. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, it, you know, when the governor exercises that power and makes something a priority, the Republican legislature is probably going to put a bill on his desk. I'm just n- not sure what form that's going to be in. And as you pointed out, they did talk about this in Washington, but they didn't get anything done on it. Yeah. At the federal level, they didn't pass anything. So we'll watch that closely. Now, the governor did talk about some other things that could be considered red meat. And this is where I look at the nuance of it. Um, He didn't call these things emergency items. In other words, he didn't say specifically that I want to have legislation on my desk about this, and I'm also green lighting you guys to go ahead and start working on it. He talked about uh, Texas being a sanctuary for Second Amendment rights. Now, that is for sure red meat, of course, for the Republican base. But are they actually going to pass a bill on that? Well, the governor didn't exercise his power to move faster on that, right? That, so that's one thing to watch about that. He also talked about um, protecting the unborn, uh, you know, uh, pro-life legislation. He's a Catholic governor. He has already – and uh, the first Catholic governor of Texas. Um, he uh, has passed – or he's signed various legislation, uh, quote-unquote, protecting the unborn, pro-life legislation. Uh, where they go with this next – not exactly sure. He talked about some kind of legislation that would have to do with uh, banning abortions that are uh, designed to select gender and race, which is an interesting way for you know, direction for him to go with that. But as far as what kind of legislation they'll pass, if they do, we will see. I will also say one other thing. The fact that he chose those five things as the priorities, as things that they need to go ahead and get to work on, and now that they have committees in both the House and the Senate, and they can start holding hearings on those things, but they're going to go slowly because of COVID-19, Yep. right? I mean, the legislature is already moving very slowly. Now, at this point during a legislative session, they don't move quickly. That's always the case. This is the time when they kind of get to know each other and do the kind of socializing that uh, you know that people do when they either are good friends or they're starting to be good friends, that kind of thing. They're missing out on some of that right now. But Jeremy, the House and Senate are on a two-week break right now. They'll yeah. be back next week. It's kind of like they're having quarantine periods in between floor sessions of the House and Senate right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it when when they get together in the House, 150 members there, and we saw it the very first week they were in session, there was uh, there was one lawmaker who tested positive after having been on the floor with other lawmakers for a few days. Yeah. Right. So there was some concern about whether people needed to quarantine, whether they need to do it to do additional testing. I saw that uh, there's a certain amount. I think about 40 lawmakers who have now committed. They signed a letter that they will. Uh, test for COVID-19 every time they're going to be on the floor of the house, right? So I I may be surprised that the number was not bigger than that. Um, But we'll see how quickly they're able to move on this. I guess the bottom line would be that whatever the governor's actually formally making a priority probably has a better shot of making it through this legislative process because they're going to have, you know, a shorter and smaller bandwidth, Yeah, yeah. And also, like, almost as important what he put on the list is what he didn't put on the list, you know. So Mm -hmm. it kind of gives you a flavor of kind of what won't happen in this legislative session. Think about years past when Mm -hmm. we were talking about, you know, border security and, you know, sanctuary city laws and, you know, bathroom bills. All that stuff's gone. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're clearly not even, you know, in that area. Uh, not to say that there won't be legislation on and, and all three of those fronts. Who knows? You know, but uh, it certainly is not, you know, something the governor is clamoring for this time around. Right. There, there is uh, an increased need to really uh, set the priorities, right, and, and figure out exactly what are those three, four, or five things that they want to get done. Uh, for perspective, if thousands of bills are usually passed during a legislative session. I mean, as many as 6,000 or 7,000, I was looking at the last few cycles, um, it's possible they might pass as few as 500 or 600 bills. Yeah. Right. It may, it may be a very, very limited scope of what they're able to so, do. So congratulations mm-hmm. to COVID-19. It has succeeded in limiting government, right? If, if, if anybody, <laughs> it, anybody out there who wants less government, well, COVID-19 has certainly given us less of it. 
Very interesting. It's the libertarians who are so mad about putting on a mask and all that sort of stuff, but they could celebrate at least that. Um, You heard Julian Castro there uh, responding to Governor Abbott. Um, There has been some speculation about whether he might jump into the fray and run statewide for something in Texas in 2022, which is our next statewide cycle here. We we talked last week about the fact that Beto O'Rourke is looking at that. He said he's thinking about running against Governor Abbott. Well, uh, Castro said, nope, he is not thinking about that at all. I feel like I just went through the marathon of 2020 and then supporting other candidates. And so right now, uh, you know, I don't have a target in mind in terms of uh, when I'm going to run again. Is it possible, Jeremy, that uh, Beto O'Rourke will have run for several offices <laughs> statewide in Texas before either of the Castros ever does that? Yeah, and, and it's an important moment to note that, you know, Julian Castro has never been on a statewide ballot in Texas. It just feels like he has been. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like he's been in politics now for you know well over a decade in Texas, and yet you know it's like it's just interesting to see. Like even during the presidential primary, he dropped out of the race before you know we got to election day for the primary, and so it's like yeah. he's never really been tested in all the different corners of the state. So it's hard to even kind of see where his power structure is in Texas. Clearly he has a base in San Antonio, but mm-hmm. where else is he, you know, a kind of guy that can get the vote out? And that I, I can't answer right now without more data. Yeah. As I was, uh, as I was, uh, starting to think about this, I was, I was trying to remember whether he was actually on the ballot for the presidential primary. I couldn't even remember that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it, who knows? We'll see what, uh, where they go with that. I would say that, uh, in that statement, um, you know, right now, the words right now are doing a lot of work. Yeah. You know, like, I'm not thinking about, I'm not thinking about it right now. Yeah. He might, he could change his mind. Of course, the Republican party of Texas by some, not by me, but by some has been described as of late as a dumpster fire. Uh, the uh, chairman, Alan West, just this week came out in favor of the, uh, move to, towards secession. He didn't say that he's in favor of secession, but he said people should be able to vote on it. Um, the party's fundraising has been uh, under scrutiny because they're not raising nearly as much money uh, as they have in the past. Which typically, they'd be raising millions of dollars, and you do not see that on their finance reports. Um, there is a question about a staffer that they had to fire this week. Did you see this? Um, the Texas GOP, here's the headline from the Houston Chronicle. Texas GOP fires staffer seen in Capitol riot video. This activist who has now been hired and fired by the Republican Party of Texas, his name is Kevin Witt, and he was there for the insurrection on January 6th. And as part of his um, activism in Washington, he did what someone who would call themselves a radical, which he does, he did what somebody who's a radical would do. Do you remember that there's this restaurant uh, in Washington that was described as the Pizzagate restaurant after the QAnon followers, far-right people, Alex Jones, InfoWars type of folks, they had said uh, there was a ridiculous, crazy conspiracy theory. But if you follow politics in America these days, you have to keep up with these things. Crazy conspiracy theory that there's a pizza restaurant in Austin where, where Hillary Clinton and some others were running a child pedophile. They were running a pedophile ring, a child sex ring out of uh, this pizza restaurant. So this guy, who was working for the Republican Party of Texas, Kevin Witt, who's also uh, said to be formerly gay, which is why conservatives really like him. He was converted from being gay to, to not being gay anymore, and, and was um, uh, previously a drag queen. <laughs> and the pictures – you can't make this stuff up. The, the, the pictures of him as a drag queen have been promoted alongside pictures of him no longer as a drag queen, and conservative activists would say, look what God can do can change somebody from looking like this to looking like this. This this guy, Kevin Witt, went to that uh, quote-unquote Pizzagate restaurant, and he confronted the employees about running a child sex ring there, which, of course, is just it, – that's made up. It's completely false. Yeah. So, But listen to the confrontation between this Texas Republican staffer – and the person who works at the restaurant. But you, a grown yeah. person, yeah, I did. How do you feel about working here in a, in a restaurant that I is known for pedophilia? I don't really feel like having an interview. Sorry. Really? Yes. But you want to you want to come and chase me to the restaurant? I didn't chase That me. makes you look suspicious. But he was not done. He actually goes into the place and starts screaming at all the employees and the customers who are there just trying to have lunch. Then you can call the cops. Okay. Okay. I'm not leaving though. Okay. I have a right to be here. Okay. Y'all, y'all are abusing children. Okay. You are pedophiles. 
Do not eat here. All of y'all should leave. They are serving that. They are serving serving up dead kids. This place is known. This place is known for a restaurant that is sex trafficking children. No. So you can hear the people who are eating there start booing him to basically, you know, get the hell out of there. They don't want this person there. Um, you might be able to defend the Texas Republican Party by saying, well, how could they know that this guy would twist off and do this? Well, this guy, Kevin Witt, said in a subsequent interview after he was fired from the Texas GOP, he said that the chairman, Alan West, and the Texas GOP leadership knew exactly what they were getting when they hired him in the first place. Radical pro-family activists, Trump activists, who goes out on the street and fight for this country, basically. He says he will go out on the street and fight for this country, basically. Now, in fairness, he did tell the interviewer, this guy Kevin Witt, he told the interviewer that um, he didn't mean it literally, that he would go out and fight in the streets, except there he is in public fighting with people, uh, you know, for, you know, for the pro Trump cause. Now, as I mentioned, this is just one of the uh, most recent controversies for the Republican Party of Texas under the chairmanship of Alan West. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird situation, crazy situation. Uh, and this, if it happened in isolation, Jeremy, would be one thing. But there have been so many controversies since West came into office, including the secession comments and all of that. And I think here's where it matters um, for the legislative session and just for our politics overall. The Republican Party and the chairman specifically have been trying to influence members of the legislature to support uh, legislation that is more, quote unquote, more conservative. Um, And I think he's going to, West is going to have more and more problems trying to influence them to support the kind of legislation that he wants to see when he's dealing with all these internal conflicts, right? It's like, you got to clean up your own house first before you can go telling other people what they ought to do. Um, And the kinds of legislation that the Republican Party wants, I, I mean, there's a list. They put out a priorities list. It's right there on their website. It's complete abolition of all abortions uh, with no exceptions, uh, you know, for the health of health and safety of the mother, uh, things like that. It's constitutional carry of firearms, which has been attempted in the legislature in the past and has not happened. It's protection of, they say, protection, quote unquote, protection of uh, Confederate monuments, um, which is, you know, something that's also been debated at the legislature. Very, very conservative list. You, you want to guess how many of those items on that list are on the governor's list of priorities for the legislature? Only one. And the one is election integrity. So there's at least within the Republican Party, there's agreement about doing that one thing. As you said, it you know plays right to the folks in the base of the GOP who want to see more, more quote-unquote election integrity uh, after what happened with President Trump. But I don't know that West is going to have a whole lot of uh, success in influencing the legislature when he's dealing with his own controversies within the party. Well, it, it, one thing is, you know, pretty accurate. You know, remember when he was like first, you know, become the chairman, he had that phrase, we are the storm. Well, I think he was probably pretty right. The Republican Party is a storm right now. And it's a little bit kind of hard to see it as a positive right now for some people in the Republican Party, at least. You know, it's like he's clearly creating a lot of, you know, attention. But is it the attention that, you know, Republicans you know, really kind of want to see right now. It's like, is this what they want? They want a a party that's criticizing Republican leaders consistently. Mm -hmm. You know, like they've always obviously been very aggressive in criticizing Governor Abbott. They've had rallies, Mm -hmm. you know, outside his mansion, you know, to, you know, protest him, you know, you know, they've protested the legislature, you know, working with Democrats and putting them in committee chairmanships. Uh, And so all that stuff is happening You know, it's like, and you just wonder, how is that good for the Republican Party? I'm not sure. You know, it's like, and I'm sure at some point, you know, West, you know, will explain why what he's doing right now is benefiting the party. And right now I'm just not seeing it. Yeah, and there's also disagreement within the party leadership about what their priorities ought to be. The vice chair 
of the RPT, the Republican Party of Texas, is a newcomer to statewide activism. Her name is Kat Parks. She put out an email just recently to supporters where she said that the way that Republicans should grade their legislators was not to only hold them accountable for the Republican priorities list. This is what she wrote. She, she um, in this email, stressed three things, law and order, lower property taxes, and the right to freedom of speech. In her email, she said, quote, not one of those issues is a Texas GOP legislative priority. However, you can be certain that those are the things being discussed around kitchen tables nightly and are of significant concern to Texas Republicans by narrowly focusing on Texas GOP legislative priorities as the singular indicator of legislative success. We lose the opportunity to address the real-time concerns of Texans. So even at the leadership level in the GOP, they don't agree about what they ought to be talking about at the legislature. You um, reported on President Trump's fundraising numbers in Texas and the final numbers were just eye-popping, right? Yeah, it's really amazing. You, you, you knew he was going to do well in Texas, you know, with Republican supporters, but I didn't expect this, you know. So, so you know, the final tally is, uh, you know, the, the race, $94 million, you know, went from Texas into the presidential race, uh, which is a ton of money. It's like that's 50, almost $60 million more uh, than we saw in 2016. So it's, it's quite a big jump. But, uh, but in, mm-hmm. in Trump's case, he outraised Biden here almost two to one, which totally it makes sense on one front. You know, if you think of sure. the one thing that, you know, the, Biden, or the, the Trump campaign was saying consistently about Biden was his threat to the oil industry in the oil economy of Texas. And you can see that mm-hmm. being a motivation. You know, one of the places we saw that, you know, Trump did best in his fundraising. In fact, there's only one city in America that Donald Trump raised more money out of than Houston. And that was Los Angeles. You know, it's like, oh. so, you know, the concern in Houston about what a Biden administration you know, would mean to them clearly had some impact in the fundraising. But, you know, but, at, you know, to wrap it up, you know, Donald Trump essentially set a huge financing record for Texas, raising far more money than we've ever seen for a Republican candidate for president ever. So wow. by doubling it, you know, du- he, mm-hmm. he, he actually was four. It's nowhere close. Yeah, he was four times record. better than he was four years ago and raising money out of Texas, despite everything, right? All the criticism he took, whatever, the money kept flowing out of Texas, and even more went into his pocket. So, Very interesting. Speaking of money into people's pockets, um, the uh, legislators in Washington, uh, Congress, uh, the House, and the Senate, still working out a deal on COVID stimulus. And it's, it's taken um, how many months now from the first round of COVID stimulus or COVID relief, which was the CARES Act, passed months and months and months ago. There was some glimmer of hope that maybe the second round would come during the Trump yeah. administration, but now that's passed, yeah. right? So now we're talking about COVID relief under the Biden administration to the tune of about, what, uh, $1.9 Something like that. Uh, that's with a B, $1.9 billion. As part of that, they want to send checks to people in the amount of $1,400. There is some debate, though, about who should get the checks. Uh, should every, Basically, the question is, should everybody get them? Or should only people who have lost their jobs and people who are less well-off economically, uh, should those people get them? Van Taylor, congressman from Plano, was on WFAA in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, and he was asked about why it's taking so long, for one thing, to get this done, you know, including these stimulus checks. And he was asked about exactly what the relief should look like. Obviously, been in been in discussions uh, with with Republicans, Democrats in the House and with senators, Republicans and Democrats, and, and actually the White House over the last week. And I think you're really going to have to see a more targeted approach, uh, sort of a let's send everybody a check. I, I'm actually believe it or not gotten complacent in my district. You know, hey, why am I getting a check? I haven't gotten a pay cut. My hours haven't been hurt. Uh, I actually got a raise. I got a bonus. Uh, things are actually good for my family. I don't. I don't. This isn't right. Uh, and, and you have to appreciate that sense of of hey, let's help people that need help. Uh, and that's certainly where I am. Uh, and so I think we need to be thoughtful and targeted uh, in how we think about aid, rather than just sort of blasting it out and, and knowing that we're sp- sending too much money to people that don't need it and not sending enough money to those who really right. need it. Now, I can see where Congressman Taylor is coming from. You would say there are people who are doing pretty well and they don't need extra money in their pockets. But I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding here uh, when it comes to that argument. A stimulus is not welfare and a stimulus is not unemployment. Yeah. 
right? So this is just a basic economic thing. And and how lame are the Democrats? I'll just say, look, you know, previously, you know, I was trying to give, you know, hope to Democrats and, you know, not try to be so hard on Democrats. But how lame are Democrats that they ba- they lose this basic de- uh, economic argument to Republicans? Who Republicans have now uh, made it um, part of the argument. It's a fundamental part of the argument to do means testing for these stimulus checks, right? That that people who are wealthy should not get them. Middle class people don't need to get them. Anybody who's still working doesn't need to get them. A stimulus is not welfare. A stimulus is like if you have an engine that's not running and you want to hook it up to the jumper cables and give it a charge. Right. It's to the point of the stimulus is to move cash through the economy. That's the point. So you get the fourteen hundred let's say you get the fourteen hundred dollars, and what are you gonna do with it? It's not gonna replace your income, right? You have fourteen hundred dollars, that's gonna run out pretty fast. The idea is that you would go to a retail store, that you would go to a restaurant, that you would, you know, buy things, you would purchase uh, goods and services. And that benefits not just you, but the person you bought it from, the businesses in your community, the people who don't. I mean, the idea that the only people who need money are in the areas where there are low income folks, that's that, that's not the only people who need the help. It, the whole idea is to get money moving through the economy so that you can create jobs and businesses can stay in businesses. And by the way, the more money those businesses have, then they turn around and they have vendors. And there's a ripple effect through the economy of saying, hey, everybody, here's a big pot of cash. Everybody just start spending it. Right. And that's the point. That's the point of a stimulus. It's not to replace your income. Right. And so it looks like, you know, for all intents and purposes, what we may get is a version of this where, you know, only those people who are less well off, get the stimulus, which is a good, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but I think Jeremy, it demonstrates a misunderstanding of what this is supposed to do, which is to jumpstart an economy that really needs yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Like the, it, it gets to that question. I've seen some Democrats make that argument. I think it was, uh, you know, Steny Hoyer, you know, the, the number two mm-hmm. guy in the U S house who had kind of made the case like where well, they're trying to help businesses, right? How do you help businesses mm-hmm. in this process? Get, you know, obviously the, you know, the, the loans, you know, were controversial and a lot of businesses that probably mm-hmm. shouldn't have gotten them got them. You know, it's like in this right. case, a way to help those you know, businesses in America is to give people money to spend in businesses. Right. You, you can see the logic in that. But at the same time, you know, I think, you know, Taylor, you know, you know hits it a little bit. And I know Chip Roy said it earlier, the congressman from uh, the Austin area whose district goes into mm-hmm. San Antonio, like he was talking about how like, you know, his concern at one point was like sending those stimulus checks to people uh, and making sure those people aren't just spending it on Amazon and, you know, and Walmart and all these, you know, big corporations. And how do you help Main Street businesses and small towns in America? So the concern about helping small businesses is kind of the unifying factor in the debate. You can mm-hmm. see where there's a place where, you know, Biden and Republicans could be able to kind of hash something out to figure out how do we best help businesses? You know, is it a couple of things? Is it a stimulus mm-hmm. and you know, direct payments to some businesses and how do you like, you know, figure out what money is going to go to your local restaurant versus going to some massive chain that's going to be, you know, based out of who knows where. Yeah. And it seems like for the overall politics of what's happening in Washington, you have a president who is reluctant to only have this passed by Democrats. He does not want to see that happen. Um, it, it seems, and Biden, um, he went out of his way to make his first meeting about this with Republicans, right? There was, there was a group of 10 Republicans that he sat down with and said, you know, how can we, you know, uh, how can we get this into a form uh, and with some Senate Republicans? How can we get you guys to vote for this too? Because the Democrats do have the votes to move something um, without any Republican votes. But doing it that way uh, and, and having the uh, vice president have to go in and be the tiebreaker on this to move it forward, it sets a bad precedent moving forward, which is that on the big things, you can't get any bipartisanship whatsoever. And has been said so many times, there's no perfect piece of legislation. It can always be made better by working, maybe not even necessarily across the aisle, but sometimes across the aisle uh, with people who don't agree with you on a fundamental piece of it. You know, take something out of it, put something else into it, compromise. Uh, Biden's trying to be the anti-Trump And remember, keep this in mind. The opposite of Trump is not liberal. The opposite of Trump is stability. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's that's what people are looking for now. And that's what Biden's trying to 
uh, trying to create in Washington moving forward. Did you see Ted Cruz trying to appeal to the kids out there by talking about the Marvel movies and the um, <laughs> the Avengers movie? I did see a little of that and painfully looked away because I was afraid of where it was going. Endgame. <laughs> Endgame is the one he was specifically talking about. Now, I'm going to say this in all candor, and it's not good for – and listen, I'm always looking out for the best interests of the listener. If you don't want to hear a United States senator saying probably one of the dumbest things you've ever heard a U.S. senator say, just turn the podcast off right now. (laughs) Just come back to us next week. We'll be here. You should be a subscriber anyway, and you'll see when the show pops back up next Thursday or Friday. Um, If you don't want to hear that, just just stop. Hit, Hit stop now. And move on to you know Sports Nation or any of the other uh, podcasts that you enjoy. If you're still with us, here we go. So, Cruz does his own little podcast, and it's called The Verdict. Have you listened to I that have. at all? Mm-hmm. Cruz talks a lot on the podcast. It's basically just uh, Cruz and some guy who interviews him, and Cruz talking a lot about different stuff. Now, I did uh, broadcast news, and and it was a professional broadcaster for about twenty years. So there's plenty of tape of me somewhere just rambling on because I had to do that and had to fill time. In fairness to me, I was not a United States senator. <laughs> so so if I said things that were ridiculous, it probably doesn't matter as much. Uh, but Cruz was doing his podcast, The Verdict, and he was reacting to the Biden administration's moves on climate change and policies toward the energy industry. And what uh, the policy of Biden is, in short – is to move away from an all-of-the-above energy policy to one that is more reliant on renewables and moving toward things like wind and solar, certainly getting away from oil and gas and uh, dirty fuels like coal, etc. Now, Cruz is trying to make the point that the Hollywood libs, he's always trying to own the libs, he's trying to make the point that liberals are environmentalists and are often radical environmentalists. So he starts talking about people in Hollywood who make these movies like the Avengers Endgame movie. And he's talking about how John Kerry, uh, who is now sort of the czar for climate, right, for Biden, uh, that Kerry had said that people would be offered different choices rather than working in a coal mine that could work somewhere that's, you know, a cleaner job, which honestly would be better for their health and better for the health of the planet. Cruz and others have tried to spin that into meaning that Kerry meant that those people should make better choices what Kerry was saying is he would like to present people with choices where they don't have to work in a dirty hole in the ground. That's the point Kerry was making. So Cruz says that what Kerry's doing and what radical environmentalists are, are, are arguing is that uh, there should be fewer people on the planet because there's overpopulation and all of that. Cruz is trying to say that the people in Hollywood are promoting that ideology by the kinds of movies that they promote to our children. I have to say it, it, it brought to mind Avengers Endgame. And, uh, you know, Carrie doesn't quite have the massive Thanos hands and fingers, but you could see the inevitable in the finger snapping. And it actually, what is interesting, and Endgame is, is curious, have you noticed in how many movies how often rabid environmentalists are the bad guys? Hmm. Whether it's Thanos or, or go to Watchmen. You know, where, where, where the, 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 the view of the left is people are a disease. They buy into the Malthusian yeah. line that there are too many people yeah. in the world, that people are bad, and everything would be better if we had fewer people. I mean, Thanos wanted to eliminate 50% of the life forms in the universe with one finger snapping. It's Thanos, yeah. by the way, <laughs> not Thanos. If anybody says a word like Thanos, they say it Thanos. They're trying to make you think that they're making some smart comment. Um, so, so Cruz, is, and I'm not going to drill down. I'm not going down the rabbit hole of Avengers Endgame and what was going on there. If you, if you know about it, it's pretty popular. If you know about the movie, you know about the movie. And I've already told you to shut off the podcast if you didn't want to hear this part, right? So I'm not, so not going to waste time explaining the, uh, you know, what happens in Avengers Endgame. Um, but – this, Jeremy, this this argument, I'm trying to make sense of it because the people he's talking about, the characters he's talking about in the movie, are the bad yeah. guys, right? He's saying that uh, he's saying that Hollywood is promoting an ideology that supports getting rid of people, and that happens in Avengers Endgame, and it also happens in Watchmen, which he mentioned. 
which I know all about, but I'm not going to bore the listener with that. If you know about Watchmen, you know about it. There's a character. I'll say this. The short version is there's a there's a there's a character in Watchmen who uh, and it's a bad guy who wants to eliminate a lot of people in an attack on New York City, kills millions of people in New York City uh, as a way to unite humanity around a common enemy. That's the short version of that. In 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 the Avengers movie, half the people on the planet are wiped out because that will uh, number one. Uh, cut down on all the problems that go along with overpopulation, but also sort of get people to rally around a common enemy. It's it's the same sort of thing. Um, but doesn't Cruz know that there's a reason that they call the bad guy the villain? It it's not the hero. I think his. I guess the point is it would be <laughs> it would be a coherent argument if the movies were featuring heroes that wanted to kill everybody on the planet, yeah, right? And. Am I missing uh, something? And and this this is Ted Cruz. You know, he has this affinity for Hollywood and pop culture and mm-hmm. entertainment that he can't like yeah. uh, escape. You know, think about him like going. You know, his impressions on you know the Princess Bride movies and everything yeah, he, he wants says to... on them. You know, you know, think about mm-hmm. the Jimmy Kimmel you know thing where he ends up trying to play basketball with him and turns it into some you know weird campaign love thing. You know, it's like think of him now talking about the Avengers Endgame and like you know, it's like he's going to be known for all these little weird moments that you know can you imagine lbj if we were sitting there going remember how lbj used to love quoting the three stooges <laughs> you know it's like or something you know it's like well, but this is like you know this is a different kind of era obviously but for some reason yeah. ted cruz cannot stop from watching movies and working into his political arguments and i don't understand why yeah. I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I come back to part of what we said last week, which was Cruz could just disappear for six months, and it would probably be good for his political career at this point. Because, you know, I mean, after all of the criticism that he took uh, after January 6th and his role in inciting the riot at the Capitol, uh, some even some Republicans have said, you know, he has he bears some responsibility for what happened there with that. If you're a United States senator and you've got a six-year term and you could just kind of cool your jets – you know, for a little while, <laughs> come back later. I guess talking about the Marvel movies is maybe sort of one way to do that. Yeah. Right. It's not talking about anything really substantive. <laughs> not something that, you know, is really going to matter. Although I did feel the need to correct him about that. All right. That is definitely enough show. In fact, it was probably enough show about 10 minutes ago. If you enjoy any of this, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. We don't judge you. Jeremy's work appears at HoustonChronicle.com. You can check him out every day there. And for up-to-the-minute intelligence on what's happening in your state government, go to QuorumReport.com, click subscriptions. We will get you signed up, and we'll see you here on the podcast next week. Mm-hmm.